Well, God bless you for being here this evening. I appreciate you being here so very much. Uh, today's been a day when a lot of you have probably worked hard all day, and yet here at the end of the day, you've chosen to give that greater part to the Lord that won't be taken away from you. And uh, I want to commend you for that, and I hope that the time that we spend together tonight in the study of God's Word will be helpful for every single one of us. Um, I kind of wish we had a singing built into this uh, gospel meeting. I, I still continue to enjoy the singing so much. You sing so well, and I'm enjoying doing that with you, and I commend you in that as well. But everybody who's here tonight, thank you so much for coming, and we, again, are glad that you have come. If you would, open your Bibles tonight to Matthew, the 19th chapter. Matthew chapter 19, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. Matthew, the 19th chapter, beginning in verse 1. Matthew 19, verse 1. The Bible says, It came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee, and he came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came testing him, and they said to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together... Let not man put asunder. And they said to him, Well, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Do you realize what Jesus just said here in this text? What Jesus just taught here in Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9, it is, it is one man with one woman for life, and divorce is not allowed. Except, he said, except it be for fornication or except it be for sexual immorality. In the case where one spouse or the other is guilty of, of sexual immorality, the other then has the right, biblically, to put them away and to marry again. Those were hard words for the disciples. Did you notice in verse 10, it said that they said to him, Well, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's just be, it'd be better not to marry. They just about couldn't have it. It was strict to them. And they thought, well, if that's the way it is, it'd just be best not to marry. And Jesus picked up on that. And I think he says in the next two verses that it might be hard for a lot of people to accept what I have said on this. Look at what he says in verse 11. He said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only to those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. I really believe, especially when you come down to verse 12, Jesus recognizes that there may be some situations where someone has been married. And yet because of an unlawful divorce, they will not be able to marry again. 
He speaks of those who are eunuchs. He speaks of those who we might say are unable to participate in the sexual arena. He mentions those who are eunuchs who were born that way. They're born in such a way physically that they can never participate in sexual relations. Then he talks about those who were made eunuchs by men. Perhaps that's speaking of a common practice where sometimes someone would be taken captive in in a war situation. And then they would be made thus. They'd be made in such a way where they could no longer participate in sexual relations. But then he talks about in the last part of that, there are those who have made themselves eunuchs. For the kingdom of heaven's sake. And so here is someone who deliberately holds himself back from marriage for the kingdom of heaven's sake. I think that fits with Jesus himself. He never did marry. Why? So that he might give himself totally to what he was doing in regard to the preparation of the coming kingdom. You might think of the apostle Paul who never married. I think a lot of that had to do for the kingdom of heaven's sake. But I do think it also applies to people today who realize that my situation is such that I cannot marry again. And they refrain from that for one reason and one reason only. And that is for the kingdom of heaven's sake. This is a hard saying. And Jesus knew that it was a hard saying. In fact, in John chapter 6, the people oftentimes would say, after Jesus taught some things, they'd say, oh, this is a hard saying. It wasn't hard to understand. The hard part was in the application. And I think that's true in regard to what we have here in Matthew, the 19th chapter. Because if you asked a lot of people, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any cause? A whole lot of people would say, well, well, yes, it's okay for any cause. And they see what Jesus taught here as being restrictive and burdensome. And sometimes even say things, that's just too rigid and it will not work in our society. And we just let our tongues run free speaking against God's law on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I want to tell you something. We had best tread carefully. In Isaiah 55, God says himself, my, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways are not your ways. Just as high as the heavens are above the earth, are, and just so high as that is, there are my thoughts above your thoughts, and just so high are my ways above your ways. I want you to turn with me now to another passage here that we'll look at along these lines. I want you to look at what the Bible says in Romans the 11th chapter, verse 33 and 34. Romans the 11th chapter, verse 33 and 34. I love what the text says here. Beginning in verse 33, it says concerning the wisdom of God. It says in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and his ways are past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? I love that passage. Which of us can sit God down and say, Well, God, now let me just tell you something here. Let me tell you how this really ought to work, and we become a counselor to God. Which of us can do that? None of us are in a situation to counsel God. And then I think about the book of Job. If you would, turn to Job, the 38th chapter. You know, Job had all those problems that happened to him, and you're familiar with that. And the Bible emphasizes that in all of that, Job did not sin. But Job was struggling with this matter. And I want to tell you, there were times when he pretty well said, it just doesn't seem right to me. I just wish that God would come into a courtroom with me and we could just duke it out together and go into dispute with one another and just settle this matter. 
And in the midst of that, God heard all that Job had to say, and Job just is saying, I just wish God would speak to me. And finally, in chapter 38, God says, all right, I'm ready to speak. And in verse 2, it says that he spoke out of the whirlwind to Job. I guess that'd be like a tornado. He speaks out of the whirlwind. In verse 2, he said, who is this? Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And then he tells Job, you prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you answer me. Basically, he says, Job, all right, I'm ready to talk now. How about if I ask you a few questions? Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. And he goes on to ask Job all these intricate questions about the universe. Like, how does this work, Job? And how does that work? And, and uh, how about this? And, and Job is just left dumbfounded. He knows absolutely nothing about all the workings of that. And basically, I'm convinced that what Job is doing, or what God is doing here, is he's pretty well saying, Job, if you think that you're in a better position to run this universe than I am, how about if I just let you take over for a while? Finally, Job... In the midst of this has to say in Job 40, beginning in verse 3. It says, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my horn over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Finally, he says, God, you're right. You know what's best. You're running this universe. I'm going to hush and shut my mouth, and I am so sorry for the things that I have said. Job learned, I am in no position to argue with God. And so tonight, when we talk about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, words to speak on God's behalf, I want to tell you, I believe there are words to speak on God's behalf tonight. That statement there, words to speak on God's behalf, comes from something Elihu said in the 36th chapter. He was one of Job's friends. And he said, bear with me a little, and I will show you that there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. I want you to know tonight that there is no law of God that is designed for my hurt. Every single law of God is designed for my good. And even if I can't figure it out, it's still for my good. I think about that passage that's found in Proverbs, the third chapter, beginning in verse 5. Proverbs, the third chapter, beginning in verse 5. Most of you have known this passage since you were young, but listen to it again with fresh ears. God says, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Trust in God. Acknowledge him in all your ways. He will guide your paths. Verse 7 says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear from the Lord and depart from evil. And then I'll add this verse tonight. Verse 8. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. God says, you just got to trust me you got to trust that I know what I'm talking about. you got to acknowledge me in every way. Follow what I say, and it will bring health to your flesh and strength to your bones. It's going to be best for you if you'll just listen to what I have to say. Now, I want to say this tonight as I enter further into this lesson. God does not need me to justify him tonight. 
He does not need me to come to his rescue and somehow try to convince you that this is a good law. It's a good law whether we understand it or not. But I am persuaded that there are yet words to speak on God's behalf when we talk about this marriage law of Matthew 19. Here's the first thing I will say. God's marriage law is going to make me careful. It's going to make me careful when I choose a mate. Boy, I can remember when I was growing up, I can remember the old timers. I mean, they would hammer down on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I remember preachers getting up and coming to a passage like Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. And they would say in Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 2, the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. And they would stress that did not say as long as he loves or as long as you love. It said that you are bound to your husband as long as he lives. I remember one preacher saying that's a lifetime. And lifetime's a long time. So whoever has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. And so then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. And so here the teaching was, if a spouse dies, then you're free to marry again. Jesus taught in Matthew 19, if there's sexual immorality, you're free to divorce and marry again. But all of this was impressing upon me the permanence of marriage. The permanence of marriage. I remember them speaking from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. After Adam and Eve had been created, They'd hammer down on verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they'd emphasize that that word cleave there means to glue together like cement. That here's two people that are bound together by God, and they are glued tight in that relationship. And then I remember Matthew 19 and verse 6 when they would say what God has joined together. Let not man put asunder. There was strong preaching on it. And so as a result of that, what happened for me was a long time. I mean a long time before I was ever ready for marriage. I knew what I was looking for. I had to find somebody who would be exactly the right person. I had to find somebody who would understand God's marriage law. And would understand that we must live together until death parted us. I knew that's what I had to find. And what that does is that just makes you careful. The law itself is going to make you careful about what you're doing. What a joy it was. When the woman that I chose to marry said these words to me. Jeff, today as we become husband and wife standing before our families and friends and in the eyes of God, I promise to you to be the best wife possible. When troubles and problems come our way, we will conquer them as we have in the past with God's help. I realize we may not have gold or silver or other riches, but we have each other, and that makes us rich within ourselves. 
From this day forward, I promise to love, honor, and cherish you forever until death do us part. God intended for us to never depart from each other except through death. And until that day, I will keep myself for you. On this day, March the 30th, 1985. I just dated myself, didn't I? (laughs) I will marry my friend. The one I laugh with, live for, and dream with. I love you forever. Truly. You think she understood? There's the words that God intended for us to never depart from each other except through death. And until that day, I will keep myself for you. And I want to tell you, it gets so frustrating for us sometimes, a married couple, because sometimes we'll be working with a couple that's having trouble. And there's been times when we have come back from something like that. And it's so frustrating because I'm working with people. They're not robots. I'd love to open up their back, the back panel, you know, and just tweak some things in there and just make them do what they need to do. And so many times what's so frustrating about it is that it's not rocket science. It's pretty easy. If you'll just do this and if you'll just quit doing that, then everything will work out fine. But the problem is so many times you get stubborn people. And not necessarily both of them. It don't take but one. If just one of them is going to be stubborn about the thing, there's not much you can do. And so sometimes we'll come home frustrated from that kind of thing. And I remember one such occasion it was like that. We got home and we got there. And just as soon as we walked in the door, she stuck her finger right in my face. And she said, Jeff May, she said, if you ever leave me, I'm going to pack my bags and go with you. And what that told me, I got a big chuckle out of it, and she did too. But it was just another reminder that I'm in it. I'm in it. I'm with you. And it was great, once again, to hear that commitment. Now, I want to tell you, something could still go wrong. Something could still go wrong in my marriage. I am not prideful about that. I realize that the devil can creep in at any time and cause trouble. But it doesn't change the fact. That when you know his marriage law, it's going to make you careful when you choose a mate. Young people tonight, do you understand what God said about marriage? And if you do, you make sure that person that you are going to marry understands it as well. It makes you careful when you, when you choose a mate. It encourages a strong start. Here's the second thing that I'll give you tonight. It promotes uh, committed love. Committed love. I think one of the problems with a lot of marriages today is that people kind of go into it thinking, well, you know, if things don't work out, we can just always get a divorce. They really treat it like we used to treat what we called going steady, you know? After a while, you know, you just, you know, here's a you know, young man, young lady, they're going steady. But, you know, we always understood that even when you were going steady, you could always bust that up if you wanted to. That's just going steady. It's not marriage. But what's happened is people have taken the high and holy sanctity of marriage and they brought it down here, treating it almost on the level of going steady. And if it doesn't work out, then we'll just get a divorce. One of the common things you hear about today is prenuptial agreements. I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe in some situations there might be, I don't know if there's any wisdom in that, maybe so. But it just seems like to me that there's a crack in the foundation to begin with. When before you go into marriage, you, you have this prenuptial agreement which basically says 
that if we ever get a divorce, here's what you get and here's what I get. What do you mean if we get a divorce? It just seems like you got a crack there to begin with. There can't be an if. There's got to be this commitment, and divorce needs to be a nasty word in your relationship as husband and wives. My grandparents, I don't think they ever knew the word prenuptial agreement. It's a product of our divorce-prone society. If you ask my granddaddy, granddaddy, what's a prenuptial Sonny, I don't believe I ever heard anything like that. That's probably about what he would have said. The only prenuptial agreement that they knew of was that we're going to love each other until death parts us, and they agreed, agreed on that before they ever nupted. <laughs> they agreed on that before they ever married. It's going to help when problems come along if you have committed love. You know, Marriage for Dummies was probably written for me when I first got married. I didn't know a whole lot about it, but one thing I did know, and Susan and I haven't had a lot of problems, really. But whenever we have, the one thing I've known is, is we've got to work that out. It didn't take long to know. I've got to work that out. And the reason I've got to work that out is because this thing has got to last. And so when you understand that it's got to last, then you're going to work on working out those problems. My marriage has to survive. But the great thing about that is, is that I, as I began to strive to work out things with my mate, I gradually graduated to always seeking what was best for my mate and not my selfish desires. The Bible calls that agape love. Agape love. It is commitment to the other person, period. It is not, I will love you if. It is, I will love you, period. Look at Ephesians 5 and verse 25. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter and verse 25, Jesus said, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That's the love that I've got to have for her. It's the same love that Jesus had for the church. I want to tell you, if Jesus had based what he was doing based on what we were doing, he never would have died for us on the cross. The people beneath the cross were not treating him none too kind. They're the very people that were preached to on the day of Pentecost and about 3,000 souls obey the gospel. Some of the very ones who participated in the crucifixion of Jesus. But if Jesus had gone by what they were doing, he never would have done what he did. He had committed love for them. And so he hung there and he died on the cross because he knew that it was best for us. You've got to have that kind of thing. Maybe you've heard about the man who said to a counselor or to a preacher, yeah, I, I've got a problem, I, I he said, well, what's your problem? He said, well, well, my problem is, is that me and my wife aren't getting along very well. And, I, and uh, well, I, I guess I just don't love her anymore. He said, what do I need to do? And the preacher said, love her. You, you don't understand what I've said. This has been going on. This has been going on. And it just seems like it's weak and things. And, and I just don't love her anymore. What do I need to do? He said, love her. And that went on a few times, and finally he said, Buddy, what I'm trying to tell you something is that love is not a feeling. 
Love is a verb. It's something that you do. It is a commitment that you make. Love her. And you got to do that through thick and thin. If you ask Susan, is Jeff a Romeo? I think she'd probably say, sometimes he is. <laughs> but there'd be other times when she'd say, well, there's other times when he's not. In fact, one of the things we kind of laughed about, every once in a while I'll kind of get out of sorts a little bit, and she'll look at me and she'll just say, you old goat. And every time she says that, I get a little tickled about that and pull myself back into shape like I need to. It's not always here. Sometimes you have these moments. But it is committed love that is moving you through every bit of that. And I'm afraid to say that in the first few years of my marriage, I would would work to solve problems with Susan, I think. But but I still kind of wanted it to come out in my best interest. I soon learned that that's not what the Bible's teaching at all. Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4 applies to my marriage as well. Philippians, the second chapter, verse 3 and 4. Listen to it. It says, Let nothing, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the Interest of others. You hear that? Don't look out for your own interest, but for the interest of others. Esteem others better than yourself. Doesn't that apply to my marriage as well? Absolutely. And listen, what that's going to do is that is soon going to lead to the greatest happiness that you can have in marriage. Because what happens is, (laughs) is that when he is meeting her needs, oh man... She comes right around and she wants to meet his needs. And that fires him up. And more and more so, he wants to meet her needs. And then she wants to meet his needs. And it just goes in this beautiful, 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 beautiful cycle. But yet what happens, it can work just in the opposite kind of way. One day she doesn't meet his needs and he gets frustrated and he won't meet her needs. And now she's more bitter and she won't meet his needs. And it goes round and round and round until finally somebody walks in the door one day and says, I want a divorce. Most always it boils down to unmet needs. But when you realize that it can work in that beautiful way that we have on the screen right there tonight, what it'll do is it'll motivate you to understand your spouse better. I want to get to know Susan. I want to know how she ticks. I want to know know what she really needs. Because it is always going to work better when I am scratching her back, not focused on mine, when I'm taking care of her. You take care of her, she'll take care of you. You take care of him, he'll take care of you if he's a godly man and if she's a godly woman. It makes you work to try to understand each other. Look at 1 Peter 3 and verse 7. I call this the diamond of all marriage verses. I love it. 1 Peter 3 and verse 7 says, Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them with understanding. You hear that? Dwell with them with understanding. I tell married couples all the time, You need to be each other's study project. Study her. Study him. You know, God didn't make us the same. It's not male and male. It's male and female. Study what makes a woman tick. And as a general rule, a lot of it will be the same from woman to woman to woman. There's just certain. But but not always. 
In fact, there's a couple at Oakland. I'm always talking about those things, and I give my top five needs for women and top five needs for men. And uh, a guy told me, he said, I think me and my wife are just switched on that. He said, I'm just as romantic as I can be. He said, but she's not very much that way. And, and they have to work with each other. They have, they have to work on all that kind of stuff. So the key is find out what your spouse is made of. And make sure you meet those needs. And all you have to do is just ask. Just ask. They'll tell you. Mine did me. That's all you have to do. But I was slow. I was slow to catch on, especially when we first got married. Uh, I remember one day when we first got married, um, we would come home and meet each other for lunch. And we'd eat lunch at the house and then go back to work. And I remember one particular day I came, and as soon as I walked in the door, I heard crying coming from the back bedroom. And I thought, oh, no. And so I went back there, and Susan is laying across the bed, and she is crying her eyeballs out. And it just unnerved me. I thought, oh, no, I've done something. Something's wrong or, 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 or something terrible has happened here. I mean, she's just sprawled out across the bed just crying as hard as she can cry. And I said, baby, I said, what's wrong? And she lifted her head up and she looked at me and she said, I don't know. <laughs> and I want to tell you something tonight. I am not so macho that I would tell you that I have never cried as a man. In fact, I'll freely tell you that I'm a man that's inclined to crying. But I can also tell you this. Every single time I've cried, I've known why. <laughs> what do you mean you don't know? <laughs> that was, I didn't get that. Sometime later, I heard about a book that was called uh, Men Are Like Waffles and Women Are Like Spaghetti. And what that basically means is that when a woman gets her world going, you ever notice sometimes women get together and they'll, they're like a, a plate of spaghetti. The noodles are all intertwined. They'll be on this noodle a little while and they'll talk about that until it hits that noodle and then they'll run that noodle a little while and then it hits another noodle. And they're just working all those noodles and sometimes it's just all worked in together. And sometimes they just feel so full. I, I just, I'm just so full. I just feel like crying. Men are more like waffles. You look at a waffle, it's got little squares, little compartments. And men are real good at saying, well, we put this in this box, this in this box, this in this box, and this in this box. And you've got to know when to do that because there's times I've tried to say to my wife, well, no, 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 it's not a big deal, just put this. And that's not what she wants right then. I've learned that uh, what happened is, is I married a woman. I married a woman, and, and she comes with these great feelings. And that makes her a wonderful caregiver to my children and my grandchildren. They don't talk about going to Gandandy's house. They talk about going to Maymay's house. Women are wonderful caregivers, and I think for that reason, sometimes those emotions get strong. Sometimes it comes around with some regularity. And in those times, what you really need to do is you just need to hold her. And you just need to say, I love you. And everything's all right. And everything's going to be okay. Sometimes you just have to let her express those emotions in the way that she has to express them. Well, would I have come to that degree of love if I had gone into my marriage thinking, well, if we have problems, we can just get a divorce. 
I doubt it very seriously. It is so much easier sometimes to run right on down to the courthouse than it is to work out your problems. But God gave a strict marriage law that says you got to work out your problems. And so it's going to promote committed love. Let me give you the third of four points. It will protect your own wellness. I suppose that there is no greater earthly joy. I can't think of a moment except in the spiritual realm in the church. But outside of that, I can't think of a better moment than that moment when you stand before a minister. And he says, by the authority of the Lord God Almighty and the state of Tennessee, I pronounce you husband and wife. (laughs) I don't have to take her home. (laughs) She gets to go to my house now. What a moment when they finally say husband and wife. But likewise, nothing is more tragic than when those same two people stand across a courtroom from one another and a judge with a few short words rearranges their lives with the words divorce granted. It has been commonly called the second most traumatic event in a person's life, second only to death. In fact, once I was preaching in a gospel meeting many years ago, I still have it, original envelope, original card. A lady had come out the night before when I had preached on something similar. And when she walked out the door, she said, Jeff, I can't talk to you right now. And it really kind of unnerved me because I thought, what have I said? I thought, oh no, I have hurt her. I've cut her somehow. Because sometimes a preacher doesn't mean to, but sometimes it cuts in a different kind of way than we really intended. And, And I thought, oh no. The next night she comes back, she gives me this card on the way out the door. I read it later and she said, thank you, Jeff. Preach it long and preach it loud. Divorce is nothing but a living death. Hear what she called it? She called it a living death. Because you know what happens? It's like you've gone through a death, but that person's still walking around on two feet. And you have to interact. And there's children. And sometimes you wish there could be some kind of closure to it, but you have to continue to interact. You know, with a death, you go to a graveside, you, you go through the services, you have closure to it, and you can somewhat move on as time allows with healing. She says it's a living death, and she said it does not get easier. It always hurts bad. But then she said, but others must know this so that they might not make this same mistake. Thanks again with Christian love and signs their name to it. When God's law is disregarded and two people divorce, don't be surprised if you find that it affects their physical and their mental health. In Proverbs, the fourth chapter and verse 20, we find out from reading our Bibles that there's a connection between keeping God's words and how healthy you are. Between keeping God's words and and being whole. Proverbs chapter 4 beginning in verse 20. He says, my son, give attention to my words. 
Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those who find them. And health, H-E-A-L-T-H, health to all their flesh. There's a connection between keeping these words and being healthy. Real situation I'm about to tell you about right here. A woman had been unfaithful to her husband. Sometimes a husband and a wife have this chemistry between them, and sometimes something doesn't have to be said at all. You just know. You just know something's not right. And there was a time there where she went through a spell, and she was just having a lot of sick spells, and he just had this eeriness about him. One of those times she's in the bathroom and she's sick there in the bathroom. She's bent over inside the bathroom and he walks in the door and he said, What's wrong? You know what was wrong? She had been with another man. And she's on the back side of that and she's sick to her stomach. Because she knows what God's word is has had to say about that. No wonder God says it'll be health to all of your flesh. Sometimes divorce affects a person's self-esteem. Sometimes they're left feeling insufficient. Was I not enough? They maybe feel unattractive. Maybe feel unlovable. And if there are children, there can be additional pain. I've got her photograph on a stand by my bed, two on the mantle and thousands in my head. I can't believe how fast she's growing. It ain't supposed to be like this. Every time I look at her, I see how much I've missed. I missed her first steps and her first words. And I love you, Daddy, is something I seldom heard. Oh, it hurts me so to watch my girl grow up in pictures. I send her money down, I do my best to do my part, but it can't compare to what I pay with my heart. There's still one answered question that weighs heavy on my mind. Will she ever understand the reasons why? I missed her first steps and her first words. And I love you, Daddy, is something I seldom heard. Oh, it hurts me so to watch my girl grow up in pictures. It takes all I have to keep the tears inside and what I wouldn't give if I could turn back time. I missed her first steps and her first words. And I love you, Daddy, is something I seldom heard. Oh, it hurts me so to watch my baby grow up in pictures. Pain, wellness, affected. It sometimes creates financial difficulties, child support, <laughs> one income. Sometimes it seems like the only people that prosper are the two lawyers. And then I think I need to say this. Sometimes when you talk about wellness, it can even bring on additional sin. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, in verse 32, Jesus continuing to talk about the subject of marriage and divorce. Jesus said in Matthew 5 and verse 32... I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, catch this, causes her 
Whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. You know, I think that verse is telling us that Jesus' society was just like ours. Especially when someone is fairly young. When there's a divorce, you know what's going to happen? Nine and a half times out of ten, there will be a remarriage. Jesus assumes it here. Whoever divorces his wife, except it be for sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. When I was in Gardendale, Alabama, Susan and I lived in a two-story house and the basement was down below and there was a pedestrian door for the basement. When I would go on gospel meetings, it was tough at times. And she would sometimes say to me, Jeff, when you're gone, I hear every sound this house makes. You know, when you realize you got a whole basement down below and somebody could come in fairly easily and you could just feel the insecurity that she felt. But what if I divorced her without cause and she's in that big old house by herself? She begins to feel vulnerable. She desires security and protection. She marries again. She commits adultery. And you know who caused it? I did. I did. He too can be vulnerable to sin. I remember Connie Adams, the gospel preacher, uh, telling me one time, he said, Jeff, he said, uh, he said, after my first wife died sometime thereafter, he said, I, you know, I just found it true for me that it's not good for a man to be alone. And so sometimes a man too can be vulnerable when there is a divorce and there's not scriptural grounds and there is a remarriage, they've committed adultery. And Galatians chapter 5 does not paint a pretty picture for someone who dies in adultery. He says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You want to talk about wellness being affected? That's wellness affected for all eternity. So can you see why I would say that it affects our wellness? In the short time that we have left, let me give you the final point. God's marriage law protects the children. Jesus warned us a long time ago about doing things that hurt children. Now, actually, here in Matthew, the 18th chapter, I tend to believe he's talking about little ones in the faith. But I think the principle's the same. In Matthew 18 and verse 6, he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. I want to tell you, for folks who think that Jesus was all syrupy and, and, and all that kind of stuff, and that he never said anything strong, you read that again. <laughs> Jesus said, anybody that would cause a little one who believes in me to sin, it would be better if you took a millstone. You know what that is? It's a big old round donut-shaped looking thing that's made out of solid rock. It rubs against another rock with grain in between, and, and you can get meal out of it. Common in that day. Jesus says, what you ought to do with a fellow like that, strap that millstone around his neck, throw him into the sea, or plonk, there he goes, all the way down to the bottom until he draws his last breath down at the bottom. That's what Jesus said. We need to be careful what we do that hurts children especially if we have control over that matter ourselves. Back where I come from is the 
kind of the, 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 the home place, if you will, of Sister Irvin Lee. Most of us in that area, we called her Mama Lee. Mama Lee always used to say, children need LSD. Children need LSD. Love, security, and discipline. And I don't mean to hurt anybody, but are any of those things in divorce? Do they see love? Does it give them security? Does it show them discipline? If people could only see what it does to the children, I'm persuaded they would do anything to prevent divorce. Or would they? Listen to me carefully. My seat was 14F. An aisle seat on my flight from Seattle to Orange County. I had planned a two-hour time slot to get caught up on correspondence. And so inundated with work, I did not notice who was seated across the aisle from me. Once we were airborne, I dropped my tray and I placed my notepaper on it. And just when I was ready to begin to write, a child's hand tapped me from across the aisle and a voice barely above a whisper said, Can you take me to the bathroom? The voice was that of Jennifer, a five-year-old, seated next to her brother Todd, a seven-year-old. They were traveling unaccompanied. I took Jennifer to the back of the plane. I asked a flight attendant to help her, and she took her to the bathroom. I instantly became Jennifer's friend and confidant for the next hour and a half, and she and Todd talked constantly and told me their life story. The only part that touched me was this one statement made by Jennifer. She said, Our Seattle daddy and mommy are sending us to see our California daddy and mommy. Our California daddy is Daddy George and our Seattle daddy is Daddy Larry. I asked them where they lived most of the time. They could not answer. But said that during most of the school year they lived in Seattle. Their mother and father had been divorced two years ago. And their mother in Seattle was remarried to Larry, and George, their real father, was remarried as well. I closely observed those two kids in between helping them to eat their lunch, getting them a pillow and a blanket, and escorting them to the toilet three more times. The lady sitting next to me who had heard and watched the whole scenario finally broke the silence on our side of the aisle to say, Two more victims of our divorce-prone society. How right she was. Listen to this. Jennifer and Todd were extremely unsettled, nervous, undisciplined, and insecure. Mama Lee had it right. As the plane landed, they said to me, Please don't walk too fast when you take us off the plane. (laughs) That was the first I knew that I'd been the one appointed to take them off the plane. But by then, my heart was broken for them. You know what broke my heart even more? Daddy George was not at the terminal to meet them. Their little faces dropped. As I handed them over to the flight attendant, I swallowed hard as they each gave me a hug holding on for dear life. True, their father could have been caught in traffic. His absence could have been no fault of his own. But the fact remained, however, that it was just one more event to unsettle their already unsettled lives. And as I drove away from the airport with my host, 
I saw their little hands waving. And my heart broke again. And I said to my host, two more tragic consequences of divorce. No doubt God in his wisdom saw a long time ago what divorce would do to children. Things that a lot of people never think about. It does destroy their security blanket. They, they receive the largest part of their stability and their security from observing solid marriages. And when it goes, so does their security. I'm a 55-year-old man, and I still need to see my daddy kiss my mama. I'm not sure it would hurt any less now if, it, if they were to split than if I was much younger. It often puts children in the position of choosing sides. They sometimes blame themselves and they say, I was bad, and if I hadn't been so bad, this wouldn't have happened. It creates uncomfortable and embarrassing moments for them. At the wedding, which man in her life gives her away? She loves her daddy. But she also loves the man that she's lived in his house for the last many years. Can the ex-spouses even sit near one another? Will they both even come? Will they behave? I preached this sermon at a place one time, and a man came up to me afterward, and he said, I'm a policeman in Mount Pleasant. He said, I recently served as security at a wedding because they were so afraid the families would get into it at the wedding, especially the the ex-spouses of one another. And I thought, bless her heart, she can't even worry, can't even think about the most special day of her life without being worried about what's going to happen. Birthdays. Can both parents attend the birthday party? Holidays are often awkward and uncomfortable. And it creates distrust in future relationships. Sometimes you have little girls who say, Can you trust a man? My daddy left my mama. Little boys sometimes might say, Can you trust a woman? My mama left my daddy. It creates distrust. And here's what I want to say to you. Without a doubt... Too many homes in America have been destroyed. And I want to ask this question. Are we going to be able to lay that at the feet of God and say, it's your fault? It's your fault. The reason everything has gotten so bad and the reason homes are in a mess, it's your fault. It's that strict, rigid marriage law that you gave. No. Our homes are not in a mess because this has been kept. Our homes are in a mess because this has not been kept. God gave a law that was good for our health, good for our flesh, good for us always. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage, words to speak on God's behalf. He didn't need me tonight, but I do believe there's things that can be said on God's behalf. Thank you. You've listened so well tonight, and I appreciate your good attention. If you're here tonight and you need to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're going to sing a song now to encourage you to repent of your sins, to confess that you believe that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God, and be baptized to have that old man buried and put away and rise to walk in newness of life, and then living faithful unto death, and he'll give you a crown of life. Or if you need to make your life right in any other way, if you just need us to pray with you tonight, whatever your need is, come while we stand and as we sing.